The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. There are people who believe that if a kid just shows up for the game, that they should get a participant ribbon. Also, that says on there? Participant, right? It says participant on it. Thanks for coming to church today. You don't have to do anything else. Here's your little participant ribbon. Congratulations. Uh, and, and that no matter how much a kid might really just suck at what they do, and how often their team loses that at the end of the year, they should still get this trophy, this participant's trophy. And I personally think that's just... That's just nonsense. Because those of us who live in the real world know just how tough things are, how hard the battle is. It's not about participating. It's not enough to just show up for life. The reality is we need the win. We need to be able to overcome our difficult circumstances, not just participate in them. So we're in this uh, little series in Exodus, and uh, the children of Israel, they're on their way out. But what if they had not actually won? What if, what if they had said, it's, it's enough that we just participated in the effort to get away from Pharaoh and slavery? What if they had not actually won? Well, it wouldn't have turned out that well for them. In fact, what they would be is they would be, they would be slaves with little participant ribbons on their little slave shirts. You see, what they needed was the win. They needed to actually triumph over Pharaoh, over the Egyptians. They needed to get out of their situation victorious. Pharaoh had to be soundly defeated. The Egyptians had to be completely and entirely crushed. And in Exodus 14 and 15, where we're going to live this morning, God gives them the decisive victory that they actually uh, needed. And uh, this isn't just some historical record. This, I'm sure there's some people here, and you would just say, I need a win. I need a win in my life. Because right now, things are uh, tough for me. And I think we could all agree that life is hard. A short list. Uh, financial pressures. And a relational conflict. Uh, marriages that aren't going well. Parent-child relationships that are off the rails. Health issues that we're facing. Ours or those of loved ones. Challenges at work or even just finding work. Family dynamics, never enough time, or the weariness that comes with just having to live my life. 
let alone the feeling that some would have here that you're distant from God, alienated from him, have no relationship with him. Those who are battling sin issues and have been for decades. Life is a battle. You need a win because participating just isn't cutting it. And that's what we're going to see in today's text. Jesus Christ secures the win that you need, that you and I both need. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to be with us as we work through his word today. Uh, Father, um, we are grateful today again for your word. And we're grateful for this time and this place and uh, for the people that we get to hear this word with. And so God, stir us and convict us and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we hear these truths this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. You're in a fight. You need the win. God secures it uh, for you. Let's start here. Uh, You have to actually face the challenge that's right in front of you. And the people were headed out of the land uh, after the last of the plague. A little recap of where we are at this point in the Exodus story. Uh, but they're headed out. The, uh, all the signs had be done uh, except one that uh, God is reserving for these chapters. Uh, ten plagues have happened, including the last of the plagues, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh's own son dies on that night. The Jews, of course, were protected by following the procedures God had given to them for the Passover. And so they're, they're on their way out. Pharaoh made the edict. Uh, we're at the end of ourselves. I, I want you to leave. And the people of Egypt, in fact, had given them their riches and handed them their gold and given them all they were worth so that the Jews were leaving Egypt wealthy. You might, you might think that they would have thought, Whew, it's over. It's finally over. Pharaoh told us to get out, and we're getting out. But God, in fact, had another challenge in front of them, something that needed to happen. And so that's what we read in the first 12 verses here. Chapter 14, and the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pithiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So God's putting them in a certain place. Listen, God's putting them. God is putting them in a certain place. Then he says this, verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Remember that was their problem? They didn't know who he was. So he's been kind of giving his calling card over and over again. They're finding out just who he is. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. You've got to believe this is happening so quickly. You're asking yourself, is, his, is the body of his son even cold? Have they even had the funeral yet? And yet here he is, 
ready to go back and suffer again the consequences of opposing Yahweh and his people. Verse 7, he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out, notice, defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and, and, uh, and overtook them and camped by the sea. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Were they not defiant just moments ago? Now they're fearing because they see the army coming. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Where's all the defiance now? In fact, they're kind of, this is a bit of revisionist history now. Because they did want to be slave from the, uh, freed from their slavery. And they did embrace Moses as their leader. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? Better to be slaves than to be free? You see, the Jews had, had simply not yet realized that there was a cost to gain their freedom. And God wanted them to understand that there would be cost to this. In fact, let me say now that there is no true freedom, no true victory without cost. There is no true victory that doesn't come with a cost. Let me illustrate this a few ways. Um, how many of you have ever seen a New Hampshire license plate? Any people from New Hampshire here? You've seen these license plates? Let me show this to you. This is their, their motto on their license plate is live free or die, which is not a great tourism motto, by the way. You're not, a, you're not attracting a lot of tourists to New Hampshire, um, but it is, um, is it not like a, a fantastic statement of their defiant belief and this embracing of the greatest of American values of freedom? I would rather die than not be free. It's the defiance that you first see in the Jews, but then you realize they don't really have it. This is not on any of the license plates on the back of any of the camels that are leaving Egypt. They didn't quite have uh, this yet, uh, but they would, as a people, eventually find it. And it would be built over many centuries of being oppressed and beaten down and, and, and tenaciously pursuing their God. In fact, if you fast forward uh, beyond the biblical record into the first century uh, AD, uh, there were Jewish rebels, of course, at the time... Uh, Israel, this is after the uh, ascension of Christ, after all the events of Christ, but there were Jewish rebels in, um, in Judea, Israel, and under Roman oppression, they had continued to oppose that, but the time was coming when their movement was really coming to an end. The Roman legions were pressing in, and about 900 of these rebels escaped to a place called uh, Masada, 
And uh, Masada is um, right beside the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea up in the uh, top left corner uh, there. And Masada is this uh, mountaintop retreat slash fortress that King Herod had built as kind of the last resort, the last place he would go if there was ever insurrection, if he was ever... Um, uh, coming against a foreign army, another foreign army invading. And the thing was so well supplied and so well stocked and just unique in its, in its placement that you could literally live up there for years and be self-sufficient. And so the 900 rebels went there and the Roman legions followed them and it took the legions uh, quite some time, months in fact, of using a Jewish slave labor to build a ramp so that they could actually get up and crash the gates. And when they went in, when the Roman legions finally got up to the gates and crashed into the fortress, they found that all but a handful of the Jewish rebels that were up there had taken their own lives rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. The modern army of Israel, in fact, has taken soldiers up to the top of Masada for them to make their pledge to their country and to serve it. That defiant, live, free, or die attitude definitely found a place in the heart of the Jews. And if you fast forward again from the first century AD all the way to the 20th century, you see it in the way the Jews came out of the Second World War. Having survived the Holocaust, and post-war, uh, to take this tiny spit of land, what we know as the promised land, and to recreate the nation of Israel, 1948, after 1900 years of not being a nation, and then since that time, more than six decades of defending themselves against extraordinary odds of any enemy that would come at them. And I think we would all agree that the modern state of Israel has that live free or die attitude. But all the way back in Egypt, they, they didn't quite have it. And since Remembrance Day is upon us this week, I thought you can hardly talk of facing the challenge and the defiant attitude that we need in the face of these things and not talk about Winston Churchill, one of my favorite leaders of all a time. He said to Parliament as he took office as Prime Minister at the start of the war, uh, this was part of his speech, he said this, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. And you ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. And our nation stood with our friends in Britain. The allies came together to oppose this monstrous tyranny. Churchill went on to say, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer it in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. 
Now I think about all of those examples. I think about the Jews in the first century rebelling against Rome. I think about the defiant Jews surviving the Holocaust and establishing their nation and fighting against all enemies. I think about Winston Churchill. I think about our role in World War II. I think of the defiance of all of that and as important and epic and critical as all of that is in human history. It's nothing compared to the defiance that is required, the facing the challenge attitude that the followers of Jesus Christ must have in the face of the spiritual warfare, infinitely more monstrous. The spiritual warfare that every one of us face on a daily basis as those who would follow Jesus Christ the threat to those of us who have, our, have declared ourselves to be on the journey as we make our way with Jesus Christ and with one another, the threat to us is real. The victory is hard fought. And it's going to come at a cost. Because all along the way there are temptations and trials and pitfalls the road is not easy, and God intends to use every one of those difficulties. It was God that put them beside the sea. God intends to use each difficulty as a means of growing us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did it at the cost of his own life, purchasing our freedom and our redemption from sin and death. Jesus Christ faced the challenge and he calls on us in the midst of our own journey to face every challenge that comes our way. There is no true victory without cost. Face the challenge and then this, trust the plan. Moses, um, Moses gives his own Churchill-esque uh, speech here though I'm pretty sure Moses predated Churchill. Verse 13 of chapter 14, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I wrote in my Bible, hard to do, right? Just to be silent, let God work. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Why are you still praying? That sounds like an odd thing to say in the day that we start a week of prayer. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now God tells them the entire plan. God gives them the details of what's going to happen here. He, he writes the script out and said, this is what's going to go down. A final decisive battle is coming and he tells them how it's going to happen. And seriously, 
What I'm telling us out of the text today is we can trust the plan. Wherever we find ourselves today, if we're the followers of Jesus Christ, we can trust the plan that he has for our lives. And again, in verse 15, God essentially tells them to stop crying out. Stop praying to get off there blank and get moving and do the thing I told you to do. It's very humorous to me sometimes and we'll tell people uh, something directly from his word that they're asking counsel on and they're like, well, I think I have to pray about that. And I'm like, no, you don't. I know it sounds spiritual to pray, but there are times to not pray when you know what the word says explicitly. There's no need to pray about it. There's only a need for you to do it. And um, I saw this on Twitter this week, a Christian's motto, this is J.I. Packer, a Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, you've heard that before, but trust God and get going. Okay, that's the thing. You say, well, I get that, but my situation is such that I'm just so anxious about it. I'm just so anxious about it, and I would offer you a definition of peace that Pastor Rick Donald shared in his excellent message last weekend. He just said this, peace is the calm assurance that what God is doing is best, even when I can't see it. The calm assurance that what God is doing is best, even when I can't see it. Trust the plan. God has given us the details. He's written the script out for us. We know what his intentions are. There's nothing happening in the world today if you're fretting about world events and how that's all going to play out and what's it going to mean for me and our country and all of that. There's nothing happening in the world today that is taking God by surprise, not a thing. And if I can make it real personal for you, there's absolutely nothing happening in your life right now that is taking God by surprise. Nothing. I get that you might be pressed up against the sea and an army may be coming after you. He knows that. He's written the script and he has only good intentions for you. So trust his plan. And if you can get all the way to that place then I, I just want you to enjoy the show. That seems like a crass way of actually saying it, but in, mind, this, in my mind, this is what's happening at this very moment, okay? This, as I read this text, this is what I picture. Right? I picture that. And, and so this is the moment, and so you can understand why I want to say, just enjoy the show, because I've got Charlton Heston in my head, and, and when I... When I get to heaven, I'm expecting this is Moses, okay? That this is what he's actually going to look like. And can I just take a little survey right now? Because I looked this up and I thought about watching the Ten Commandments and I thought it might be cool, uh, like after one of our Saturday services, just to have a showing of the Ten Commandments. How many people would come to that? We'd pop popcorn and the whole thing. We might do it. I don't know. But here's the thing. So I went and checked it out. It's three hours and 40 minutes long. Seriously, 
in the middle of this movie, they actually go to a black screen and have an intermission in a movie. It's, it's, it's epic in every, in every sense of the word. And um, how many people have actually seen the movie? Show me again. Man, there's a lot of you. And, um, but that's what I have in my mind. So I'm, I'm thinking about enjoying the show because this is, the reason why Hollywood did this is because it really is quite dramatic what's happening here. Check it out in verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. So there's this angel of God moves and goes behind them, between them and the army. And the pillar of cloud moved from behind them and stood from before them and went behind them as well. And it came between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So you have the sea, you have Israel, you have the armies coming. Now the, the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud go behind them. Drama. Big time drama happening through all of this. I lost my place. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> and there was a cloud and darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. This is going on throughout the whole night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So dramatic. Charlton Heston standing on the rock. Picture it, right? Have you got the picture? The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left hand. This is where Ripley's got their idea for the aquarium. Okay, I thought that would be funnier. <laughs> the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. The morning, in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. See, they're down in, in the same stretch now. They're, they're pursuing, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Excellent idea. Should have thought of this sooner. Uh, but they didn't. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one, not one of them remained. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And then this little postscript, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And one thing is certain when you read that account, especially those last two verses, that no one was left wondering about the victory. I mean, it was decisive. There would never be a moment when the Jews would have to worry again about this particular enemy. Completely wiped out the, the country, devastated by the plagues they had endured. The firstborns all dead. And now the Egyptian army completely eradicated. They would never need to concern themselves with this enemy 
And could we get to the place where we are less concerned, not concerned at all, completely at ease about the enemies of our past? Could we claim the victory over past sin? It's such a common refrain among those who are the followers of Christ, who've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, asked for the forgiveness of their sins, received it from the Lord, who are perceived by him to be declared righteous and justified in his sight, and yet we, not God, is the one going back to remind ourselves of past sin. That we continue to live with the shame of it that we continue to be crushed by the guilt of past sin. When God himself has said, I'm gonna take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. Why do we allow ourselves when the victory has been secured, when we stand on the other side of the sea, why is it we still concern ourselves with our past sin? Why is it that so many of us continue to be paralyzed by it? Christ has won the victory over death, over sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has won the victory over sorrow, over separation, over alienation from God. Jesus Christ has won the victory over evil and darkness. And his victory is absolute. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, God himself, took on human flesh. He endured everything that we endure. He faced temptation the way we face temptation. He faced sorrow and trial. He is acquainted with all of our griefs. No one is more qualified to secure the victory and then to tell us that we're forgiven, that it's all in the past, that we need never go back. Jesus Christ, who was wrongly accused and condemned and viciously crucified, dead and buried. Having faced it all on the third day by the power of God's Holy Spirit, was victoriously resurrected from the dead. Paul wrote it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the, say it, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if all of that is true, you see, that's the big show. That's the greatest show on earth. What happened on that Sunday morning when Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, when death and sin were defeated. How could we not say it in the way we just said it? Let's sit back and enjoy the show. Enjoy what Christ has done for us. Because you're in a fight. And you need the win. God has provided it. And having gained it, 
Is it not true that we should celebrate the victory? Shouldn't we just celebrate this victory? A song was composed, I would suppose, after the event. They were telling the story, and they have this song. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Follow along in your text. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is trying gloriously, the horse and rider thrown to the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is trying gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my soul, has now become my victory. Nicely done. The Father's God, and I will exalt Him. (laughs) Who was that? I don't know. (laughs) How many people know that song? How many people know that song? I like to surprise how few people know that song. It's been around for uh, quite a while, um, but obviously it reflects the uh, heart of the text here in the first uh, two verses, and this song that was composed to celebrate actually tells us a lot about how we ought to worship our God, how we ought to celebrate the victory that he's uh, given uh, to us. We're going to work through the verses here, and... Um, up on, the, up on the screen, I'm just going to give you this. Uh, what our worship should be look like, what, what it should look like. First of all, this. Um, it should be Christ-centered. First few verses, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, and you can see how it's just entirely vertical. It's completely on the Lord. And when we come together to worship, not about us at all, entirely about him, we sing praises entirely to his name. You can see that all through those first few verses. And then I would say this about our worship, it should be gratitude-based. And verses four through 10 go back over the things that God has already done. Our gratitude is always a look back on what Christ has done for us and the blessing he's provided and how awesome he is in our lives. So important for us to have the look back and to give thanks. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, verse 4. Verse 5, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths, verse 6. The Lord shatters the enemy, verse 7. He overthrew the adversaries. Verse 8, the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, rehearsing the past again. Verse 9, the enemy said, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to overtake, I'll divide the spoil. Verse 10, then you blew your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters, just rehearsing the past. God, thank you for what you've done in, your, in my life. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Christ and what he means to me. Thank you for uh, my family and for the friends and for all the blessings you've for just rehearsing everything God has done. Our worship should be gratitude-based. And then, thirdly, it should be encouragement-rich. 
Verses 11 and 10, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And just the speaking to the Lord again of what he's done, but, but listen, speaking it to one another. And the awesome thing about gathering together in this place on a weekly basis is is that we get to speak these truths to one another. And as we do that, that's encouraging. It builds me up. And when I'm in a lower place and I'm not feeling great and I'm hurting in some way or I'm under pressure or the trials are difficult, if that's where I'm at today, I get together in this place and those of you who are on top of your game and the Holy Spirit's rocking it for you, you're singing these words and I might not be as able to sing them, but I'm hearing you sing them and that's strengthening to me. And when I'm in the strong place and you're in the weak place, the fact that I'm singing them is strengthening you. It's at least in part why God has given us one another, why God has given us the church, why this journey isn't something that I'm just doing with Jesus. I'm doing it with Jesus and all of you because along the way, we're always gonna need each other. And our worship should be encouragement rich. And then it should be forward-looking, verses 13 through 18. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Have they been to Philistia yet? No, they have not. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Have they been to Edom or Moab or Canaan yet? Um, No, but they're coming. And the peoples in those lands know they're coming. And they're trembling with fear at all they've heard because none of these empires was even close to being as powerful as Egypt was and God brought Egypt to its knees. God's still gonna do some great things that are yet in the future. And um, I love that our worship can be like that and uh, the song we sang just before the message and we're gonna sing again in a few moments is so forward-looking. And we need that. We need that forward look to what God is going to do. And then, finally this, it's passion laden. They rehearse again the history of what had just happened. And then verse 20, the song is over. uh, But Miriam gets pretty excited and pretty passionate. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. The universal symbol of passion tambourine and excitement and joy you can't be you can't not be happy when someone's playing a tambourine correct excellent and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing and Miriam sang to them and she goes back into the song sing to the lord we're not going to bring Joel out again sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea and our worship should have that kind of passion to it. And I would just say to you, if there isn't passion, I'm not saying everybody needs to exhibit the passion in the same way. I'm not saying it has to be with dancing or tambourines. But like if the needle isn't even moving in your worship, if it's not even moving internally, if it's not moving you at all, I would say that that's a lack in your life. It's something you need to examine before the Lord for all that he's done for us and all that he's going to do. That should move the needle, amen? That should move the needle. 
Now understand that not everybody's celebrating the victory. That the folks who are on the other side of the sea now, they're celebrating the victory because God has delivered to them, but all the drowned guys in the sea are not celebrating the victory. And Pharaoh is not celebrating the victory. And, and the devastated and defeated Egyptian people are not celebrating the victory. And even in this room, there are people who by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ are on the other side of the sea and are celebrating this going, I get it, I love it. And there are some people who it's as if they're still in Egypt and they don't get it. They don't even understand what I'm talking about right now in terms of celebrating the victory. The needle doesn't move because they don't have a needle. They don't get any of this. The Egyptians who didn't believe in Yahweh were either dead in the water or mourning the devastation that had happened to them. The reality is that for some of you, this doesn't make sense, and it's because you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. The majority of people in this room are bound for glory, but you're not. And I would, I would appeal to you in this moment, as I often do, that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ that you would confess your sin and you would allow the cleansing that only comes through Jesus Christ to lift that sin burden off you and to erase the condemnation of death that's over you and to bring you to life in him so that you with the rest of us can sing the song of victory. I would appeal to you not leave this place before you've become a follower of Jesus Christ. Celebrate the victory with us. And a final word here. Stay the course. After everything they'd seen and experienced over these past weeks in Egypt and at the sea, and with all the singing and dancing, the people somehow lose sight of God again. That's the little episode we have here at the end of chapter 15. Moses made... Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. We would admit that that would be a crisis. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there, notice this, there he tested them. He tested them. The whole thing was a test. An opportunity again for God to grow their faith, to see how faithful they would be to him, how trusting they would be of the plan. And yet the people grumble. And so God gives them, and this is going to be applicable to every believer for, throughout the rest of history. He gives them the very simple two-step stay the course plan. If I'm going to stay the course and be faithful to God, I know he's done some awesome things for me in the past, but I'm at this place right now where there's a crisis in my life and I'm really tempted to grumble to him and God, why are you doing this and why am I in this place? Can I stay the course instead? 
the simple two-step, stay-the-course plan, we're going to call it this, the listen and do plan. Okay, the listen and do plan. It's in verse 26. He tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen, circle that word, to the voice of the Lord your God and do, circle that word, that which is right in his eyes. And then he kind of repeats the whole thing with different words in case they were not listening and didn't get the very clear, simple listen and do words. He says it to them again. Give ear, circle that, to his commandments and keep, circle that word, keep all his statutes. And that's an if statement. If you will do that, if you will listen and do, if you'll give ear and keep, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, your healer. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you in a good place if you'll listen and if you'll do. And all of this is a sobering warning to us. A great victory had been won. A great victory has been won in the life of every single follower of Jesus Christ. But do we still grumble and complain? Do we still demonstrate a lack of trust in God's plan? A, a God who had give them, given them and given us every reason to actually trust him. God has taken care of the greatest enemy we'll ever face, Satan himself and his condemnation of us because of our sin. He's taken care of that. How then could we not trust him for every other matter that comes up in our lives? How much more will he not care for every other need that you have? And the Jews, in fact, would not get this. We're going to see it repeatedly in the chapters that are coming and the different episodes that they're going to face that, in fact, they so don't get this that God condemns the entire generation that came out of Egypt. He disciplines them. And for four decades, they would wander the wilderness, not entering the promised land, and not one of that generation would enter the land. For one reason alone, they didn't trust him. They didn't trust his plan. I would hate for anyone here to fall under the discipline of the Lord and not receive the full benefit of the blessings that he has for you simply because you couldn't trust him. If they, you and I, had only listened to the Lord if they, you and I, had only done what we heard, then they, you and I, would have found a God that was willing to heal and lead and provide and love in abundance. Everything you and I need to secure victory is found right here in the word that he's spoken to us. He says to us, Listen to this and do what it says. Everything you need to find relief for your sins is found here. Listen to this book and do it. Everything that you need to overcome every addiction in your life is here. Listen to this book and do it. Everything you need Every marriage that's struggling in this room, everything that you need 
to not only help you through the rough patch, but to make your marriage, to make your, make your family rock. It's right here in this book. And the only reason why we don't have those things is because we're not listening and we're not doing. God has provided us everything that we need right here and our part is to stay the course. God has already told you what you need to figure out your purpose in life, to figure out who you are, what your identity is. Every issue that you're facing, every challenge that comes your way is going to be resolved and overcome and beaten if you will listen to the word of God and do it, if you will give ear to what he says and keep his statutes. Well, the final verse... Verse 27, listen to this. They came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Doesn't that sound nice? Palm trees and water. After all that had happened to them, they paused. They took a rest. There was a break. God provided them an opportunity to reflect and to consider the goodness that he had poured out on them to think about the promised land that actually awaited them. And in a very real sense, just look here for a second, in a very real sense, this is why we come together on weekends. This place, in essence, is, is palm trees and water to our souls. It's a pause. It, it's, it's the oasis from the week that was and the week that will be. That's why it's so important that we not neglect the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. Because we need this place, we need this oasis to think about the Lord and what he's provided for us. When it comes to the end of it, of all the things that characterize our worship and all that we've been talking about here today, the one thing that I wish we talked more of, and this is on me more than anyone else since I speak more often than all of you, is we don't think enough about what's to come. We don't root our ability to overcome our current trials and struggles enough in the fact that relief is coming. Your trial may last for a day, a week, a month, for years, or a lifetime. But the hope that we have is, listen to this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming soon. In fact, of all the awesome things that we find in the word of God, when we turn to the very last page and the very last lines, the Apostle John records this for us. He who testifies to these things says, Jesus Christ says, surely I am coming soon. What a great hope that is, amen? Surely I am coming soon. And to that, John on our behalf says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so. Do you feel that? 
want him to come now. I want to be relieved of my sorrow now. I want the pain to go away. I want the suffering to end. I want everything to be restored. I want to go to the place where he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. I want to be where I can look at him face to face. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.